Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Today, we are finding ourselves in one of those cultural moments where you can actually feel the movement of history. In this case, it's regarding race and long overdue. And it's making for a great many conversations among integralists and to, and everybody. <laughs> and today I'm going to share one of my favorites with you. I was joined a week or so ago by two of my now favorite integral philosophers, Greg Thomas and Phil Anderson. Greg I've known. He's been a frequent guest on The Daily Evolver, mainly regarding African-American culture and intellectual history in general, but also particularly on the integral aspects of the art form of jazz. And he has opened my, I was going to say eyes, but I guess ears, to a whole new world. And a lot of people feel that way. You could check out those on the site, those podcasts. And Phil Anderson, I'm meeting here for the first time. And he blogs about Integral on the website Integral World. I would always welcome you to join the conversation. And you can write me at jeff at dailyevolver.com or leave me a voicemail by going to the Daily Evolver website, clicking the Connect tab, and there's a little orange box where you can leave me a voicemail, and I often play them on the show. So that's it by way of introduction. Thanks for joining us, and here's me with Greg Thomas and Phil Anderson. Well, I thought we might start with just sort of a round robin where we can each put our opening statement out there and see how that gets us going. I might start with you, Greg, if okay. you don't mind, because you're the mastermind who pulled this together. I mean, you, <laughs> you do both, Phil and I, we didn't know each other. So what brings us together and what are you thinking and how are we moving the ball here? Okay, thank you. I really appreciate this, this chance to uh, engage with, with you, Jeff, and, and Phil on, on the Daily Evolver. Um, I'll try to make this as succinct as possible. I mean, my exposure to integral meta theory began a little over 20 years ago through Ken Wilber's A Brief History of Everything which, you know, by then, as I said in a recent blog post on my blog, tuneintoleadership.com, I had read hundreds of books by then, but that book blew me away. <laughs> it truly blew me away. The breadth, the depth, the multi and interdisciplinary power of it. Um, I was in grad school at the time at NYU doing a doctorate in American studies. So what I was doing at the time was really deepening my grasp of literature, history, and anthropology. Because I, I felt that I had lacked in those areas in undergrad. So uh, I said, well, let me go deeper. And then I read this. I'm like, whoa, look at what this guy has put out here. So it gave me frames of understanding, frames of reference that answered a lot of questions for me. So that was the first thing. Then 10 years later, about 2010, 
I say, you know, I'm, I'm checking out Integral Naked, uh, you know, the, I guess what then became uh, Integral Life. And I said, you know, I don't see, I don't see a lot of black folks here. I don't see a lot of content that has to do with my experience, the black American experience in particular. And, and it was less from a, a racial perspective because a colleague and friend of mine, Mark Palmer had actually done an interview with Ken on Integral Naked about race. I was like, oh, good, thank you, somebody. And I had seen Ken interact with uh, Michael Beckwith, uh, Saul Williams, and a couple of other, you know, uh, black folks. So it's not like there was a total absence. But I said, you know, I'm an expert on jazz. So let me see if I can integrate what I know about jazz and the blues idiom philosophy of Albert Murray and Ralph Ellison within this integral frame. So I started contributing content thanks to Corey DeVos, the editor in chief of, of uh, Integral Life. And I started you know, putting in this content. And then I met you, Jeff, um, went out to Boulder three consecutive summers you know, with you and, and Steve McIntosh. Stayed at your home, bless you, thank you. <laughs> you know, good fun. Yeah, been on Daily Evolver, you know, on numerous occasions. So fast forward to 2020. Um, I engage in a conversation on the channel Rebel Wisdom, um, which is based in the UK. And then this was posted on Facebook, and there was some discussion around it, and a conversation that I had as a part of Integral Justice Warrior, hosted by Diane Mushel Hamilton and, and, and Corey. And so as a part of this conversation, I'm engaging with Phil, who I'd say we've probably been Facebook friends for maybe five, six years. Uh, and we were going through some back and forth and Phil was presenting some models of analysis in terms of white identity, black identity, and also the integral model as relates to race in such a way that he helped me move from a really anti-race as a concept perspective at a green level to a real second tier yellow level of appreciation for race, no matter its sordid history. Race as a way of looking at human beings in their difference in a way that's beautiful. And it, and it, it, it moved me, it touched me, it actually brought me to tears. So, because it's something that helped my own evolution as mm. far as that very difficult uh, concept and subject, you know. So, thank you, Phil, once again. You yeah. Know? So that's that's that that's kind of the short of it. Yeah. Right on. And and yeah. and then you called me and explained some of Phil's thinking, and I thought, wow, that's great. I want to explore it more. Yeah. And have because we've emailed back and forth. Uh, and so I'll, I'll use this as a segue to you, Phil. And how would you like us to know you this morning? Okay. Um, oh, gosh. Well, I mean, I suppose um, uh, perhaps uh, following Greg's example and, and starting from the scratch, um, I, uh, have, I, I study electronic engineering. Um, no interest really in philosophy or psychology or anything like that. No knowledge of it. Uh, right the way up to the midlife point. 
And I think I was always interested in uh, sort of reflecting on deeper questions. And I can kind of look at the things I wrote in my 20s and 30s, and I can sort of see now, oh, I can see where this was going. But <laughs> uh, really, I suppose at a, a midlife point, and it was uh, perhaps something of like a midlife crisis, um, a, a lot of it precipitated, uh, you know, by uh, my own middle age and uh, realising that whilst I'd spent the first half of my life going up, it was going to be downhill all the way, you know, my body fading, coming to terms with my mortality. Um, and then right at a, a fairly crucial point in that, my mother, who was very close to, fairly unexpectedly died. Um, and that just brought up all sorts of paradoxes for me. I, I was in a very fortunate position where um, I basically had a lot of free time and was able to take time off and and reflect. I didn't have to uh, uh, keep working hard to to, to make ends meet. Um, and uh, so I was able just to reflect on on these paradoxes. I mean, you know, a good one is I you know I feel real. I feel I feel like I'm real. I, it's it's real that I exist. So how can it be that in fifty years time I won't exist? There's you know there's a paradox there if you uh, bother to go into it deeply. So I did. Um, and also had this sense, um, uh, my mother used to uh, be a fan of Théard de Chardin and um, trying to get to know her a bit in the last few months of her life, I was reading this and I kind of got slightly hooked into it. I thought, where's evolution going? And then I thought, this is sort of an engineering problem. I can look at this as a systems problem. If I can characterize um, uh, w what's happening and, and, and the process that's occurring, then I can predict and see where human race is going. So I thought, well, I, I, I thought, I'm sure I can do this. Um, and um, I sort of spent a year where I was thinking about this and thinking about this. Um, and I was getting these sort of moments um, of, of, you know, sort of insight clarity where I just would be walking down the street and suddenly had this slight sense of waking up out of a dream. Um, so that was starting to happen. Um, and then eventually um, uh, I, I arrived at a point where I was putting off doing my tax return. So I was looking for something I could do to um, keep me occupied to avoid having to do my tax return. I thought, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to work this out. And uh, uh, what, what I came up with was this idea that uh, reality is this layered system. And I represented it um, using engineering control theory. And the idea is, is that um, it's a control network, layered control network. And that as evolution progresses, new layers emerge. Um, and uh, uh, w when I finally got the insight that this was what it was, and this is what evolution was, and this is what the planet was doing and where it was going, um, uh, it just caused this huge um, sort of flash of clarity, mental clarity. And there was this sense of my perspective being transformed and suddenly looking at the world in a fundamentally different way. Um, and so I started writing down all these ideas and uh, uh, um, I, I sort of thought initially, I've discovered something radically new here. I'm the first person that seen this. But then I started looking around a bit and um, I, you know, I found Ken Wilbur and uh, I think it's the Theory of Everything book. And I just remember reading that and yes, yes, yes. And then the, uh, the, the, the map, the spiral dynamics map and seeing that spiral of the stages, I thought, oh my God, you know, that's it. That's just another representation of what I thought. So it sort of feels to me that that experience was um, you know, an experience of second tier thinking actually emerging in me 
uh, in, in a fairly independent but very rudimentary fashion. Um, uh, and, and I then sort of spent less time thinking about my own ideas and more time just saying, right, okay, I've got to go into this and understand all, all the work that's been done by, you know, Wilbur and all the other people in this domain. So that's kind of where it comes from. Um, I, I think because of where I uh, came to it from, I've got my own unique integral perspective, which is reflected in that work I've done. Um, it's not all learnt out of books. It's sort of, I, I feel, in a, in a rudimentary fashion, I sort of independently arrived at it. Um, and that sort of gives me a, a bit of a unique perspective. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not up at the sort of Ken Wilbur polymath level, um, but I've got my own little unique perspective on it all. So mm -hmm. yeah. uh, that, that's really where it is, I, I guess. Yeah. And um, isn't that how it's going to emerge? Yes. That people all over the place, whether yeah. or not they know of each other, whether they know, know of Ken Wilbur, it, at some point you just see yes. evolution. That's the, that's the key. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Waking, sort of waking up as, as it. In a yes, sense. exactly. Yeah. And seeing it in first, second and third person or, or however the four quadrants, however you want to slice yeah. and dice it. It's not just the physical evolution. It's the yes. consciousness. It's the cultural. Yeah. And that's really what brings us to, uh, I, I guess, the, the more narrow topic of what we wanted to talk about today. And that is the cultural movement that we're all seeing since the murder of George Floyd. And, um, and I've done a couple podcasts and, and we've all written on it and communicated with each other about it. I guess the first question, what have you seen in the last five weeks? What, how have you yourself changed? And uh, I, I guess I'd start with you, Greg. Thank you. Um, wow. I, in a sense, have been kind of preparing for this moment where I publicly discuss race and culture with a level of depth that actually represents the decades of study that I've, I've done with this, the conversations that I've had over decades. Um, and I would say about five years ago, you, I think I probably made my first appearance on Daily Evolve about five years ago, first about jazz and then about American culture and democracy and, yes. race and you know so but but at that time I was engaged in research on a specific project I call transcending race right that that title was a program that actually my wife Jewel had when she was the executive and artistic director at the Riverside Theater of the Riverside Church in Manhattan transcending race so I said yeah that's what we need to do Damn it, we need to transcend race. You know, so I started working this out and had a conversation with my daughter, uh, who was an undergrad at Dartmouth at the time. She majored in computer science. And, and she was like, Dad, I'm kind of worried. I said, why, baby? She says, because if you say, if you come out here and say transcending race, there are people I know and there are professors who will attack you for wanting to transcend race. I said, baby, I understand. Daddy's ready. You know, that daddy's ready. <laughs> you know. But it took this moment after George Floyd and a confluence of things that, that are just coming together and manifesting in terms of relationships I have, 
platforms I have access to, my own platforms in terms of my blog that I mentioned earlier. All of this stuff is just coming together. And it took me until the age of 56 where I got to a point, I'm, I'm at a stage where it ain't about ego. It's not about my seeing my byline on an article. It's not about me looking at a tape and say, hey, look at myself. It ain't about that shit. It really isn't. We are at a place in our development and, and, and evolution as Americans and as a humanity where those who are in the know, not just from a cognitive level, from a, an embodied cognitive heart gut level to talk about that, need to speak up. My blog is about leadership. And if you know, you have a responsibility to take action. And there's certain things that I know and I've come to that I just, I've got, I've got to share. So that's kind of where I, I, I come into this. Um, I don't remember what you asked. And if I answered it, well, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I, I, that's all great. And uh, it fills out where you're coming from. Okay. Uh, the, the specific question is, what are you seeing? Oh, or what do you, Greg Thomas, oh, what have I now? come to? Yeah, right, right. Thank I mean, you. I think we're all in agreement that this has been a cultural moment that is just evolutionarily speaking, that it's a, it's a punctuation in the e equilibrium, you know, that yeah. we're moving fast forward here. And um, how, how's that showing up for you? What okay, do you think? Thank you. I, I would let's put it in. Let's go in Phil's wheelhouse. Let's put it in systems terms. Okay. Uh, <laughs> let's let's speak about uh, chaos theory, and how in chaos theory and systems theory, when a system gets to a point of phase change, it's chaotic. Before it gets to that next phase of synthesis of of evolution, that's where we're at on so many levels. I mean, I've heard so many people say that, my God, with COVID alone and the economic impact, the social impact uh, it's had, the cultural impact has had destructively, if you want to take that perspective, and definitely it's been this, like destructive. I'll, I'll say something that the great composer and jazz saxophonist, tenor saxophonist Wayne Shorter said recently. He says he sees COVID as a teacher for humanity. So there's so many things that came out from that alone. And then you add on top of it, uh, something that someone said, the only thing that could take COVID out of the news in the United States is race. <laughs> oh my <laughs> goodness. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> Who was you know? that smart person? Who's I know, that? right? <laughs> I, I, I can't remember right at the moment, um, but it's just true. So I feel that there's been a compression of movements that have been developing for a while. There are futurists who looked ahead to 2030 and said, by 2030, this will happen because of AI and this will happen. It was like, whoop, 10 years were compressed. And then that's future back. Then there's the past forward where movements that have been gelling and, and, and congealing for hundreds of years as regards race have resurfaced in a way where more white folks probably than ever before and certainly since the civil rights movement 
in the United States are open to self-reflection, to questioning themselves, to looking at what can and should be done right now to make things better, yes, for black folks, but really for the nation as a whole. It's not just about helping those people. Those people are American citizens and are part of the whole and contributors to the whole. So I'm excited. There's a lot of stuff going on that you know, I don't agree with, that, you know, that I can critique and that many do critique. But I'm excited because the possibilities yeah. are so great for us to make positive evolutionary change. Wow, hallelujah. So yeah, Phil, what's that bringing up for you? Um, so yeah, some of the, some of the same things. Um, I mean, it just felt like it just felt like punching through a, a wet paper bag. It was it was so easy for the uh, obvious injustice just to burst out into the news and be accepted as an injustice. There was no sense of pushback. It was just like everyone allowed it to to be seen as what it was. So uh, that is a phase transition. You know, it, it sort of met no resistance, this, this, this explosion out and, and everyone being prepared to, to look at it. There's this sort of sense of, all oh, right, okay, no, we aren't still quite done with this yet. And I think, you know, most white people have, have, have felt that. They've, uh, there's this, okay, you know, perhaps we thought it was okay, but it isn't yet. We, we still actually have to go further with this. Um, there's another side to it though that I've seen. Um, I mean, my, my uh, political position is uh, radical centrist. Uh, my own cognitive bias is liberal left-leaning. If I do one of those um, political compass tests, I, I come out in the lower left quadrant. Um, so that's, uh, that, that's my politics in terms of my inherent cognitive biases. Um, but I am what I heard someone describe as situationally right wing in 2020. And uh, the reason for that is because um, I feel that um, the left has won the culture wars. Uh, I, I, I feel that, um, that, that the left has, has um, um, uh, been working for the last sort of 50 or 60 or 70 years, whatever it is, um, against the conservative, um, um, sort of narrow-minded conservative perspectives that were racist, sexist, homophobic, all, all of that. Um, and uh, it sort of won it. Uh, there's a, uh, an ideological battleground out there, and, and the left have won it. But my sense is that um, just as the conservatives in the 50s didn't think they had to listen to, listen to progressives, um, uh, of the era because they, conservatives felt they had the moral righteousness, the moral high ground. Um, I feel we're now in that situation with uh, uh, that we liberals are treating the conservatives. And what I've learned in, in the last few years is that um, whilst there are still some of the old world conservatives out there, there's a whole new breed of conservative that is coming to liberal thinking with yes and. They're coming to uh, uh, liberal thinking. They're saying, yes, gay rights, that's a good thing. Uh, equal equality for people regardless of sex or race, that's a good thing. We're actually behind that. That's absolutely fundamental. And so they're, 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 they're sort of going beyond it. Um, and um, it feels to me that li the, the liberal worldview is resting on its laurels. So, uh, uh, and, and it's become overconfident, like the conservative worldview had in the 50s. 
Um, and uh, so part of the view on race, um, this whole race thing, um, what I've been doing, well, one thing that I've been doing is um, uh, reading up a, a lot of um, uh, commentary from black conservatives. Now, I do not want to hear it really from a white conservative that there is no such thing as racism in 2020. Um, and there are black conservatives who are saying that. And I actually have to say, do you know what, guys? OK, so I, I know why you're saying that, but it's actually not completely true. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of these people are saying that. Uh, there's a lot of black people saying that this, that, this, that, and they're countering all these liberal arguments. So I've been, I've been uh, sort of making an effort to listen to those uh, and, and to consider them. And uh, one thing which I've discovered uh, in that process um, is that there's very one-sided reporting on the whole issue of um, police brutality and race, uh, even in a media which um, has got a sort of, um, uh, you know, a contractual obligation uh, to, to take a neutral position like the BBC has to be politically neutral. It's presenting, um, I would say, a sort of progressive green slant on the story, and it is omitting the conservative slant and uh, the problem is, is that that's, that one-sided reporting is itself inflammatory. Uh, what one fact which lots of um, black conservatives are, are, are reporting, we've got this fact that um, uh, in America, if you're, if you're black, you're three times more likely to get shot dead by a policeman. And that's horrific. And that fact in isolation is deeply disturbing for anyone. Uh, and it's making people very angry. Um, and uh, a lot of the media are reporting that fact in isolation. The BBC certainly is. It's not, it's not saying anything else about it. Um, but what the black conservatives I've been reading are saying is, well, the thing is, is that um, the black community are committing about three times as much more violent crime. So uh, they're, they're um, uh, you know, and I'm not judging that at all, because uh, there may well be reasons of systemic racism and uh, lack of employment opportunity as to why black people are desperate and behaving like that. So I'm not judging it. I, I've got no doubt there's systemic racism in the police. Absolutely no doubt, you know, because I have fully read that side of it. And just my understanding from the way norming dynamics work. And, and the fact that the police force is going to be mostly sort of ready blue sort of individuals that have probably got some quite ethnocentric perspectives in there. So, um, uh, the, you know, to me, there's no question about that, that, you know, that, that that's going on. But is it, is, it as, is it as horrific as it's been portrayed in the media? Uh, and my hunch is, is that in some respects it's not. And um, the, the one-sided reporting is very dangerous. So, so that, you know, in summary, that's where I am with it. It's the sense of um, that, the, the, uh, the, the, you know, the liberal perspective has finally punched through the wet paper bag and met no resistance, uh, which is, a, you know, a wonderful achievement. And it's sort of, you know, about time. And that we have to take stock. We have to still say the work is still not done. But I think we've got to be aware that there's this other dynamic coming in now, which is the blind spot of the left. Um, and the single-sided reporting uh, is is steering up is is um, uh, creating a lot of uh, you know sort of racial antagonism antagonism and anger about the situation. Not all of which is you know uh, factually justified. So it's sort of that that's kind of how I see it. It's a complex situation, uh, and I see it very firmly from those two perspectives. You know, one one of triumph, and one there's a new danger appearing. Yeah. 
Yeah, what I have seen and and how I look at it is that every stage comes online in history with a totalitarian aspect. And if you think of how red comes online, (laughs) it sure ain't pretty. When you think of how blue traditionalism comes online, just suppression of magic, burning the witches, all of that sort of thing. Uh, When you think of orange even coming online, the modern worldview in the sense of its technological achievements and global reach and ability to impact the biosphere, but no just ignorance around that, ignorance of culture. And so its pernicious aspects are just everywhere. Is green going to come on without a a totalitarian aspect? No, it's not. And um, and the the one thing I'd say that gives me a little bit of hope is that it's going to be less pernicious. But I have to say I agree with you, Phil, in the sense that I've been surprised. I knew this was going to happen, but I was I'm surprised at the speed of it and the hegemony of the green uh, sensibility uh, on mainstream media, including the BBC. In what they're doing, you know, and I know it, it's, it's, they're countering millennia of history of triumphalism, mm-hmm. where cultures told each their, themselves stories of their greatness and other people's weakness and the greatness of their God. And, uh, you know, it's worth the, all of that horseshit. Mm-hmm. And so Green's doing its job by countering. Um, mm-hmm these triumphalist stories that are still deeply in our heart. When I think of the education I was given about America, I think one of the great things of sorting all this out, and I think people are sorting it out, is that we're getting, you know, with these statues and what do we do with these forefathers? You know, what do we do with Thomas Jefferson? The <laughs> Declaration of Independence guy who bought and sold people. I mean, so we got to figure that out. And, and we realize that there's at least two stories that are going on at the same time. And development is such a good explainer. It has such explanatory power, also in terms of race. Uh, but I'd love to hear from you too, Greg. Oh, absolutely. Thank you both. Um, regarding what Phil said, um, I see that too. I agree with your analysis. I would be a little more precise in in the language. Um, I think that those statistics that you were referring to in terms of the homicides and violence within the black community, as opposed to it being the black community, I would say that there are a particular group of mostly young black males who who are committing those crimes. Yeah. Young young black males who are often from a particular family setting, dad ain't home, and there's, there's a lack of discipline. Because there are single parent households where with a particular structure of discipline, with a particular value system, with a particular extended family dynamic, grandmothers and that type of thing, that doesn't happen necessarily. 
Yeah. No, I mean, so, if you heard the conservative argument, uh, the conservatives have an argument uh, of just exactly that. And, and again, as you can expect with the conservatives, they blame the liberals for the single parent black families. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, and of course, they, and they never necessarily point out the fact that since the 60s on through the 70s, that single parent households have been endemic, not just to black families, but to families overall. Yeah. In the yeah. statistics. So, yeah. You know, and I also wonder, what are the crime statistics among the rednecks that I grew up with? Yeah. And, and, you know, and the wild young men in those communities? You know, it's again, development. I mean, a red center of gravity, you're actually supposed to go out and fight. Yeah. You know, you don't really want a job, not in the way that we think of a job. You're a hunter. You're a fighter. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I would say that, uh, you know, if you look at often the, the urban settings in which the dynamics that we're talking about occur, there's a big premium on respect. Yeah. Don't disrespect me. Yes. Don't diss me. Because, you know, you're, you're, if you diss me, that means that you're looking down upon me. If you're looking down upon me, then I've got to bring you down for looking down on me. You know, I mean, just I mean, they, you know, it's more complex, but those are some of the basic dynamics that have been studied. So I would agree that there is what uh, Coleman Hughes, uh, a young man who um, is been getting a lot of uh, exposure over the last year, year and a half, two years, recent Columbia University grad. Um, I happen to know him, uh, but I know his father better. His father's actually a client of mine. He calls it coverage bias. So there's a definite coverage bias where I think the name of the gentleman who died in the same manner as George, George Floyd, about six or seven years, Tony Temper, I think is his name. Same, begging for his life, caught on videotape. And the officers, white officers, he's, and Tony Temper was white, laughing afterwards. That never got national coverage. That's an injustice, okay? That type of egregious, example of police brutality deserves to have coverage because then you go to the larger issue of police brutality and police responsibility to do what they say in the New York Police Department, serve and protect. You're supposed to be in service and you're supposed to be protecting. You're not supposed to be enforcing uh, the will of those who are the beneficiaries of what Isabel Wilkerson in this Sunday's, this past Sunday's New York Times book review called the American caste system, which yep. is uh, uh, based on hierarchical dominator uh, uh, dynamics, you yep. know? So, so yeah, I mean, we're, we're able to have this conversation where, you know, you, you called yourself a, a radical centrist, where I literally, my, my blog post yesterday was titled, why I am a radical moderate. That's literally the title. <laughs> so and I, and, I, and I make the case and I explain how I came to it and all of that. So I totally agree with you there. I would also say that I live in the lower left. Culture is my thing. Um, and that, and this is what I say in the piece that on some issues, 
I'm on the right, someone's shoes, I'm on the left. And the two examples I give, the, the, the left liberal desire to expand the social contract, the promises of the social contract, the Western and American in particular, democratic social contract, to more and more people who've been excluded, marginalized. I totally agree with that. And on the right, I agree with the power and function of business, particularly small business, entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurial business and entrepreneurship as a part of a free enterprise system. Now, the actuality is that neoliberal capitalism is not a free enterprise system because monopolies have been able to get in there and then you have folks who have been able to pair private enterprise with the government and so there's not the competition that a free enterprise system is supposed to be. But just in terms of its theoretical modeling, entrepreneurship and free enterprise go together. So I'm all with that. So, so you know what I mean? So I think we can have these mature conversations as adults, as integralists, where we can say where on the left we agree, where on the right we agree, where we disagree. And one of the things that I want you all to know that I intend to do in addition to uh, the blog that I have, tunedtoleadership.com, my wife and I, we're going to launch a podcast. And I may launch one or two interview shows, you know, that where the, the purpose would be in one case, one of the shows I have in mind, is to bring together voices that not only don't you see brought together on mainstream media, you don't see it on social media, you don't see it on YouTube. There are certain people who are reasonable people, intelligent, informed on both sides who never get together to have a conversation. I want to help make that happen because I feel that I can use a term that a young man named Peter Lindbergh uh, coined, mimetic mediation. We can mediate between these meme levels, these yeah. value system and worldview levels so that if we are truly integralists, we can speak that language, understand it, be able to repeat it back in a way that the person who you're saying it to feels that they've been heard. You know where I'm coming from, right? And to do that on the other side too, let them engage, literally mediate, facilitate, curate, so that you can have an antithesis, a thesis, antithesis to a synthesis. The conversations need to happen. So I, I hope and intend to be a part of making those type of conversations happen. Yeah, it feels like it's becoming particularly important at the moment. There's so much polarization. And I think the, the, the more people who are able to occupy the centre ground and see um, all perspectives, the better now. I feel even in the integral community that uh, the centre ground has been lost it feels like we split into um, a, a, a left wing and a right wing polarity. I'm quite amazed to see that happening, you know, in a, 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 a community that prides itself on being able to take multiple perspectives, that it's split into these um, old fashioned historical political perspectives. Are you <laughs> seeing that on, in really? social media, Phil? Sorry? Are you seeing that in social media, Phil? Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's just been this whole, I think there's been this whole split in the integral community. A lot of it was around Jordan Peterson. Is Jordan Peterson integral or not? Right. And 
all the sort of right-leaning conservative integral theorists, well, of course he's integral, whereas the sort of liberal left-leaning, he's not integral at all, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's blue. Um, so there's that big sort of disagreement that happened there, and, that, and there was a split at that point uh, of, of, of the community sort of breaking out. Um, so, uh, and I was, you know, I'm sort of slightly shocked to see it, really, because it, you know, it, uh, it challenges our premise I think it's terrible that God uses human beings to advance (laughs) civilization. I just object. (laughs) I got to tell you, Phil, I I 100% agree with you is that's where the split surfaced. It so happens that I had been doing my own, you know, research on Jordan Peterson before he got, as we say, in the vernacular black community before he got large, he got large there, right? (laughs) So why did I, why was I looking into him? Because I've got a real interest in myth, not myth just from the perspective of its origins, say in the earlier values. I'm talking about the inclusive part of myth. In other words, we transcend that stage, but we include myth because you're not gonna get away from story. Yeah, you're not going to yeah. get away from narrative. Uh, good luck if you think you can. Okay, yeah. and therefore we have to be able to incorporate certain aspects of myth. So he's someone who's lectured on myths for years. I was checking out his YouTube uh, videos. I'm like, but you know something? As he was lecturing, I could f- I could feel and sense an undercurrent of sadness with Jordan Peterson. Yeah. You know, I was like, wow, this guy's carrying some stuff, you know? And, yeah. then he, and then he got big, and then I saw the very, is he integral, is he not integral? And you know what I did? I backed off. I said, ain't no way I'm going down that rabbit hole with you. <laughs> no, 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 no. And I'm not even gonna tell you that I've been researching the guy because I'm just watching you guys back and forth, back and forth over this figure who's become a public figure on his perspective on political correctness, this and that, because he is actually resonating with your own critique or not resonating with your own critique. Therefore, he is or isn't integral based on you thinking you're integral. So therefore, if I agree with him, he must be integral or not integral. Come on. You know? <laughs> I stuck my hand right in the blender and did two full episodes <laughs> on him. <laughs> Uh, you know, I you know, I think we're all in agreement. He has integral sensibilities, and he's stuck in places. It's uh, yeah, uh, no, uh, you know, join the club. Yeah, but, uh, let, let me just turn turn things to what you were just talking about with Greg with myth and culture in general, because I know that's where you live. And this is a, a, a thesis I came up with on the Daily Evolver when I was doing my contemplations on race relations and integrals. Uh, point of view, uh, the idea that, uh, and I think I saw it in your work too, Phil, that part of the what we need to do as human beings as, and as a culture, and I think we're actually doing it, is to light up these earlier stages um, of magic, myth, and and do Black Americans have a special sort of stream or gift or there, Greg, yeah. simply because developmentally they were pulled out of a tribal early red 
kind of a situation and then move forward. And, you know, you can move your body, but the soul, and, the, and we even call it soul, sort of. Is there some X factor there that we need to notice? Absolutely. I would say that you had a combination of, of, of tribal red, but you also had blue amber, whichever color you want to use at that stage. You had actually both of those dynamics because you had social structures and societal structures that were definitely more advanced than the, than the tribe, although the tribal, of course, was there. So I want to mention that you had, as Philip and I had some online engagement, but you had the Mali Empire. It was an empire. 40% of Black Americans descended from that particular area of Africa. So you're not talking about tribal there, okay? But the point is, it was not modern. It was not orange. So you have a group of people, you have a group of different people from some at, you know, the, the tribal place, some at the more um, formal social structures with a mythic orientation. Some Africans had adopted Islam, you know, which is one of the three major Western religions, and that has a certain up-leveling effect in and of itself. But they were put into a situation where you have different groups, different languages, different cultures brought together in a way where they traveled for three months on slave ships and came to different ports in the United States and, and other parts of the Caribbean and such. And what happened is they were put into a modern situation in which they were forced to leave behind the aspects of their culture that weren't essential. Only what was essential could survive. So some of, yeah, that, that's actually what happened. So then what you actually have for the first time is a truly African, but really African-American sensibility forming in the new world so that you have the integration of certain sensibilities, certain spiritual conceptions, certain uh, ritual practices that are adapted. One being, and this is important, one being the ring shout. The ring shout is a ritual in which you, they get in a circle, right? And this happens at, uh, at different transitional points in life. So it happens at funerals, for example. Um, it's, a, it's a spiritual ceremony where they walk in a counterclockwise motion. Now, check this out. And they're walking slow and there's music, there's clapping, there's... And then an individual will go in the center of the circle and dance, their own dance. So you've got the group, but you've got the individuality. And they come back, someone else goes in. And they do their dance and their interpretation. There's a book called Slave Culture by a late great uh, historian named Sterling Stuckey in which he talks about this ring shop being foundational for the creation of the spirituals in the 19th century for black Americans. Ralph Ellison said that the spirituals were the first runnings, the first really indications of uh, the creation of a new people where through that folk culture, you have a symbolic representation of the actual values of, the, of those people. So 
you have, and but it's not only African. They're surrounded by, you know, European traditions. They're surrounded by all of these different things and they're assimilating and carrying both and they are influencing the slave masters and they're influencing the culture at the same time. So American culture is actually, actually a vernacular culture. This is from the work of John A. Cohenhoven, who was very influential on both Albert Murray, my mentor, and Ralph Ellison. Uh, the Beer Can by the Highway was one of, his, one of his books. You can check it out. He talked about American culture being vernacular. And that vernacular culture is a combination of the learned traditions of Europe and the homespun creativity of creating what you can based on the resources right around you, American tradition. You have those things that come together that create an American culture. And you have Constance Rourke, who talks about specific mythic types in America. You've got the Yankee, you've got the backwoodsman, right? You've got the black American. Now, I'm, these are all modern terms. That's not the term she used. She didn't say the N-word, but she said the American Negro type. And you have these types that form the foundation of a fundamental American character, okay? And call, in fact, she called her book American Humor not just because it talked about the comedic tradition, but because she talked about humor as a kind of character, American character. So there's been a lot of work done on this polyglot mixture, hybridity, all of that stuff is really what American culture is. And black American culture is a big part of it. So if we look earlier, I said what? I'm 80% Sub-Saharan African, 18% European, 2% East Asian and Native American. My mentor, Albert Murray, would call that omni-American. That's an all-American mixture. It's a mixture of these different components. Now, that's biological, but culturally, we're even more mixed. But as Ralph Ellison said, you know, we kind of get afraid of that pluralism. We, we get afraid of it where, and then we end up going back into our own ethnic, racial, religious corners because it's easier there. That mixture piece is really tough for people. And I'll, I'll end with this, at least this part, by saying that Robert O'Mealy, um, literature professor at Columbia University, who I've known and have worked with over the years, uh, once recounted a story of Ralph Ellison speaking to a group of white and black students. And he said, you know, what you white students need to know is that you part black and what you black students need to know is that you part white. Now, if you could realize that, if you can embrace that, we can get along and we can go a lot further. But boy, you say that to folks of the world on both sides. It's like, no, no. But this, that's the cultural reality. We're a mixture. We're a combination. We're a composite. Yeah, there aren't many pure race people. I, I suspect these days, yeah. uh, we're all a bit of we're all mongrels. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yep. But I think there's you know this this um, business of um, you know what 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 um, Africa has. I mean, I I, I you know I, I I see it the way that um, you know at some point um, uh, some some people decided to leave Africa and went off and look at some other places, and some people. Um, you know, the, the, a decision happened there, 
um, where some people thought this, let's go and explore. And other people said, no, it's good here. Let's deepen our existence here. So you've got a sort of split in perspective that happens there. Um, and, and it just strikes me that um, both of those develop two separate sorts of perspectives. Um, and, you know, I know all the, um, the, the, the sort of green postmodern arguments that uh, sort of, uh, you know, race is just a social construct and that sort of thing, which, of course, is, it has got a relative truth to it all. You know, race is a very, in, as a scientific or genetic construct, is, you know, pretty, pre pretty fuzzy and shabby, really. But it's got a sort of loose patterning to it. And, and, and I do feel that um, people that have come, tended to have come, um, you know, from, from different geographical areas um, where there have been different survival challenges and different, uh, you know, environments, different climates and things like that, have, have, have all evolved different qualities, I think. And that there might not be much genetic difference between us all, but I think there is some. And um, I, I, I think it impoverishes the human race to say that we're all exactly the same, because I don't think we are. I, I, I've just got a sense that we've all got different qualities. And, and I think it, uh, my, my vision is that all these different qualities are integrated into global humanity and that they bring these multi, these different ways of looking at things. And, I, you know, I think that the African perspective is uh, fundamentally and radically different from the European perspective. I mean, it feels to me, um, uh, you know, re really, uh, you know, the European worldview, it's very uh, logic and reason based. It's all about fact and all that sort of thing. Um, in, in, in my um, uh, sort of integral work, um, a point I make is that human uh, communication has got three dimensions. There's three dimensions in speech. Um, there is um, there's rhythm and emphasis, and that communicates. I, I, I would say the I, my sense of I, by you know, putting my rhythm or emphasis on the words. Uh, there's a, a dimension of we in there, which is the musicality. I use intonation to, to, to hold you in relationship while I'm bringing these ideas in, in, into the space. And then there's another third there, which is the, uh, the, the conceptual meaning of the words as sound objects. My, my view is that, um, you know, in the, in the West, um, uh, you know, we, we, we privilege the objective so we privilege one third of this this, this dimension, and uh, my, my my sense of um, the African perspective is that if anything, it's the other way round. It privileges these other dimensions, which uh, gives the African perspective a depth of appreciation and knowledge and development um, of uh, uh, you know these other two dimensions that you know appear, for example, in music. I, I think music is completely underestimated in terms of the, uh, the importance and cultural impact it has. We had um, our uh, education minister saying, well, we're going to cut funding for um, arts and things like music, and we're going to put the money on the STEM uh, subjects. So I think, well, th and that's quite a, a traditional British Western perspective. But what I don't think he realizes is that um, the, 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 the rational perspective is underpinned by these other dimensions. You know, it, it's an all quadrant affair, and if you want to, if you want to develop the rational, um, you've actually got to develop these other 
aspects out too. So, uh, you know, that's what I see as um, uh, coming from black culture. And that, that's, uh, you know, as, as I was uh, saying to you in uh, email, Greg, you know, th th this is one reason I think uh, America is this sort of big, powerful, super successful culture is because of the injection of um, the perspective that's come in from uh, black Americans uh, has complexified uh, the culture well beyond what would have been possible if it was just white Europeans there. So, um, you know, the, the, the power and place of America on the world stage, it's sort of, uh, you know, black Americans have got a foundational role in that. Um, so, you know, that's, that, that, that's the thing. It's so, but in, in a way that's, um, that, that sort of um, going away from the green idea that, you know, race is a social construct and, you know, the, the green perspective deconstructs it to, to the impoverishment of the human race, I think. Um, uh, so, you know, I think there is, whilst I accept the arguments that, you know, race is a very fuzzy construct and, uh, and also a much uh, abused construct, um, you know, I think there's still something there. There's, there's still, um, you know, an element of truth to it all. I, I would just very quickly, if you would, uh, Jeff, yeah. say that my, my only response would be, because I, I resonate with so much of that. Of course, we have to be careful not to stereotype and all of that stuff. You don't mean it. So you're not coming from this. So that's, you know, I don't even have to. But there are people watching who may think that it's falling into the stereotype of the European is rational and the African is feeling, you know, I mean, you know, which from a stereotype effect, you know, so in other words, feeling, but not intellect. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you don't mean that. So, but what I, only thing I will say is that when we talk about, uh, we could probably say Western, European and Western are not synonymous, but I think some of the tendencies of the West in terms of its orientation to meaning has to do with denotative meaning, right? But there's also connotative meaning, which goes into kind of the poetic dimension the feeling dimension, you know, the dimension where there's multiple layers of meanings of terms and combinations of words that you can put together in a certain way where that feeling tone gets in there too, you know? Yeah. So, so um, it's ultimately- well, Let me jump in here too. And, and I've, I've wanted to ask you this, Greg, uh, uh -huh. to just get down into sort of a specific of it okay. from, from a cultural point of view. Right. What's, how do you see the uh, the the gangster music, the the hip hop culture? Because I know you you know jazz and blues and all that, but there's this other part that it's got a lot of juice, and and I think it is necessary, and I think it's part of what's filling out humanity is that, but it also is offensive and misogynistic and bling and babes and it's red it's what it is i mean hello uh, a lot of it is uh, yeah. uh, uh, so um what do you think well i think that uh gangster rap in particular was marketed very strongly um with nwa f the police it was marketed very strongly because you, were, you, you have industries that were able to make multi, multi millions of dollars weaponizing 
an actual expression that comes from uh, particularly urban Black America, but it also transmitted certain stereotypes, stereotypes of violence, materialism, um, uh, being anti, you know, establishment, um, you know, having the swagger. This is real black culture. This is to the extent where Wynton Marsalis, one of the greatest, not only jazz, but European classical musicians in the world travels so far, you know, to other parts of the world. And he's actually told that he's not authentically black. Can you believe that? Because of people's perception of hip hop, that's the real thing, right? Okay. So I look at it, not just from the artistic expression, which, you know, like for me, I mean, uh, I look at some, you know, great lyricist, um, uh, what's his name, Rakim, uh, Eric B and Rakim. Rakim was a master of lyrics and a master MC. I look at what he wrote and he was very influenced by jazz, no surprise, uh, Nas, and there, there are different ones who are very, very lyrically uh, have a lot of depth, but that's not what's really promoted that much. So I'm suspicious about the way industry has promoted and popularized hip hop. Okay, so th so that's my response regarding regarding that. Uh, particularly when you have now jazz. Look, the market is the market. So. Jazz was the popular art form of the country in the 30s, after the depression, the big band era, and you know, people are able to dance, you know, and you know, they get over the depression. Then you gotta go, you move through the 40s, you know, World War II, got over that, you know. In the 50s, you start to have RB music and rock and roll starting to bubble up. So by the 60s, with the, and this is your people, Philip, the British invasion. <laughs> you started all this. <laughs> you know, I don't mean originally, though, we can go back there. I mean the Beatles, you know, and the Rolling Stones and such. Um, that's when. Well, they too know, were offensive. I can't get no satisfaction. Let's spend the night together sneering and prancing and dressing up. And uh, it, yeah. you know, that yes. was. The of the day. Yeah. Today, they were pretty obnoxious. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, my, my parents, I, I was so happy that they turned my parents off because <laughs> yeah, their job again. Right. Yeah. So you know, you have some of those impulses that are in certain aspects, kind of outlaw culture aspects of American culture that preceded hip hop that, you know, oh, as, yeah. it's, as a legacy of, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, but the market, so the market, decided and the help of marketing and business forces to promote popular culture. Popular culture is the big uh, behemoth, you know, fine art, jazz is a fine art. So when you talk about fine art, you're talking about something that you actually need to, you need to be educated to it. I mean, integral meta theory is a very fine art theory. You have to have some underpinning and education to really grok it. You know, that's just the reality. So, but so, but that's not really pushed. So I, that's my emphasis, you know, yeah. the, the, the high end of black American culture, uh, because I know that in its execution and in its underlying values and principles, 
that it's exhibiting not only the best of Black American culture, but it's actually democracy in sound. And I can show that very easily. So, you know, so hip, I, I appreciate some of it, but I've never really been a hip hop head because I, at the same time, the hip hop was starting to really bubble up in the late 70s. I'm in Staten Island, it's bubbling up in the Bronx. I'm in a, a housing complex, six stories, and, I, and there are people downstairs in the uh, driveway in the back with turntables and beating. And I'm going, I'm, I say, oh, that's interesting. And of course, you know, you, there's certain songs that are popular that you learn the lyrics to and you're bopping your head. But this is the time when I'm checking out Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and Clifford Brown, and, <laughs> you know, John Coltrane, and I'm learning to scat their solos and stuff. So I'm like, you know, what, what my teacher, and it wasn't fair, but they asked Albert Murray what he thought of hip hop. And he said, man, it sounds like they just got out of slavery. You know, now I wouldn't go that far, but there is something to that. Yeah. There's something to that, you know? So that, that's kind of what I think of, of that, you know, uh, hopefully that's answered your question. Yeah. Phil, what do you think? Yes, well, um, yes, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure if I've got to, much to comment on that particular topic. I'm certainly interested to uh, hear, hear Greg's perspective on that. Um, and um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. Uh, hip hop, I, I don't know if I, I, I actually I do quite like some of it. I do quite, not the really angry stuff. Yeah. Um, I, I, well, I, I'll tell you what, I, I mean, because part of it is perhaps I can remember, um, Oh gosh, what was it? I think it was uh, there, there was some music festival, perhaps it's some gay pride thing, but there was some hip hop artist on who was playing this really highly charged music, and the whole stage just had um, uh, the whole area just had a black audience. Uh, and what, the thing that I became aware of is just the, the, the sort of racial contrast, and and there was a bit of a sense of where I, th I thought, oh my gosh, that's actually quite intimidating. But I also thought, well, how would I feel if I was white? I might actually think, whoa, I like the energy in this one. Because, um, you know, obviously, if it's playing into these sort of quite earthy, um, sort of ethnocentric perspectives, um, you know, one man's scary is another man's sort of powerful energy. Yeah. So, um, you know, I found that quite interesting. But uh, yeah, it's an, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting music form. But I, I'm a bit with you, Jeff, it's a little bit, um, a little bit too red. <laughs> well, what I would uh, also point out is that there's all kinds of red culture that aren't uh, related to race. If you think of heavy metal music, very nihilistic. Uh, if you think of video games, the Japanese, you know, the, have the most uh, horrible video games, I mean, from a certain perspective. And so I would note that these art forms have come online with a ever-increasing sensitivity and pacification of the populations who listen to them and imbibe them. And I think that's worth noting. And I would I'd take some issue with you, Greg, in that, you know, yes, they, of course, there was the orange corporate forces pushing them out into the world, but there were also ears to hear it. No doubt. You know? I, I got you absolutely right. Yeah. That was the missing part of my analysis. Because <laughs> if there wasn't an audience for it to buy it, yeah. then and it a lot of the ears to hear it, uh, of the even the urban, you know, so-called black stuff are teenage, white teenagers. 
I mean, and I that, think there's something about that that is actually there, there, there is there's pro and con to that. And, and the pro is that there are people who will come up, you know, of, of, of that generation who identify with that, who that's a part of their music. So therefore, an aspect of black American culture is a part of their own identity. But I think the negative part is what I alluded to is that some of them are looking at this as real black culture. Yeah, no, I, I no, know. this is like, you know, uh, I'm getting an inside track to the real thing. And it's a partial part yeah. of it. And some of that is, a lot of it's performative. You got black middle class, very well educated folks who are acting as if, I mean, in some cases, acting as if they come from the street. You know, and they did this and that. You know, they grew up on Long Island and middle class. Long Island. <laughs> you know, they had chickens for God's sake. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so you know, you know, so there's a performative aspect no. to this. People taking on characters and that yeah. kind of. You know, that's yeah. Yeah. No. Fair enough. And it's all part of the soup. I do think that in the sacred world to come, though, we're going to have more fuck you energy online than we do now. I and think, we do, and we do now. There's a and we do of, now. There's uh, a lot of fu energy out here, and just the polarities alone. Yes, I know there are, but I think it'll be integrated. I think there oh. is something. I think red is still very repressed. There's a healthy aspect of it that is just get your hands off of me, or and just look at me, and then what are you looking at? And there's some, but but in a. Uh, a, a, a more developed system, if you will, where there's the layers of civilization, the layers of rationality, the re layers of sensitivity that come online in the you know, post-red, uh, and even faithfulness and obedience in a certain way that comes on with blue or amber, that that red is fun. And that our progeny, who have integrated it, will look back on us and say, oh, those poor repressed people. I, I, I would just very quickly say, I think you're right. There's oh, a theory, theory um, based on integral theory and spiral dynamics called volution theory by Peter Mary. And he has, he and Dylan Newcomb, the, the, the integralist and dancer, work together on some of this. And this theory basically says that, you know, it's hard to summarize a theory and this is short, but if you have beige being the first level, right? And then purple, the transition from purple to red was not transcend and include, it was transcend and repress what came before. He looks at beige and purple as yin energies. He looks at red, blue, orange, and green as yang energies. And then second tier, yellow and turquoise as yin again integrating what came before. So I, I mentioned this in the context of some of the earlier discussions as far as like an African underpinning and tapping back into it that we've emailed about Philip, probably a little more than we've talked about here. And that is something where, yes, we've got to integrate all of it, not just the red, beige and purple too, without yes, going- absolutely. Without going to the, you know, uh, pre-trans fallacy. Right. You know? Yeah, we have to. Yeah, so, what would we say would be that essence of purple or that essence of magenta? I would say deep community, mm. initiation. Mm. Um, it's it's where the ego is R subsumed ritual. by the whole. Yeah, ritual. 
And then beige would be an embeddedness in nature where we would realize that we're part of this wind in the sky. Hello. Yeah. And we're working on all of that, I think. Uh, And and also the the red fuck you. I'm on my way. I'm my own person. I I break out of this. And um, I think all of those need to be uh, drunk up. And we're doing it, you know, slow but sure. Actually, not so slow in the last. Jesus right. Christ, I can't keep up. <laughs> yeah, it's all going pretty mad. Anyway, uh, so any uh, closing thoughts, gentlemen? Maybe Phil, we'll start with you, and then we'll ask you, Greg. And what fun this has been! Uh, yeah, it's been very nice chatting to to both of you. Actually, it's nice to uh, speak speak to you in 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 the cyber flesh, as it were. Greatly, um, <laughs> Phil. What's your website, and how might people check out your work? Oh, well, it's on integralworld.net, uh, which is um, uh, j- just a website that you, you probably, uh, is, is it, is it an integralworld.com? Uh, I think that's the URL. Um, and uh, any, anyone searching on that for Philip Anderson should find the, uh, the writing that's I've written. So. Great. Philip Anderson on Integral World. Yeah. All right. Right on. Yeah. Mr. Greg. I would just say thank you. Jeff, for the invite and for having us on Daily Evolver. Phil, it's been great to, to we've, we've been Facebook friends and have, you know, uh, done posts and private and now emails. This is the first time we're literally seeing one another at the same time. So it's great to engage and interact with you. I just feel gratitude. I, I just feel gratitude for the opportunity to, to share and engage and interact with you both talking about, you know, issues that are very important for our time that have to do with the past, but that have to do with the future we're trying to build together. So I'm just, I I feel a a spirit of gratitude and appreciation. So thank you. Uh, Greg, why is it that every time you talk, I want to say hallelujah at the end? (laughs) I that's think because, you should. <laughs> that's because, look, I mean, that's because whether you know it or not, I've got some real strong Christian underpinning. I Must mean, be. Me too. On my, on my mother's side, it was Pentecostal holiness. On my dad's side, it was African Methodist Episcopal, more straight laced, more, you know, Episcopal. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. so I, I have both of those as underpinnings of, of my. Um, my style. That's the gospel side of my jazz gospel continuum. So that's, I think you're kind of feeling that, man. I do too. Yay. So, uh, yeah. So uh, I, I, I trust you will bring more of that to us in your new podcast. And Thank so you. what do we know about that and how can people find out more about you? Thank you so much. Um, the company that my wife and I have is called Jazz Leadership Project. So you can check out jazzleadershipproject.com. But the blog tune into leadership.com is our content extension um, where we take the principles and practices of jazz and deal with leadership development business but of late social and cultural issues very primarily and prominently Um, and we're going to be launching you know i'd say before the years out a podcast so people i would urge you to go to tuneintoleadership.com and subscribe so that twice a week, Mondays and Fridays, you can get our, our um, posts and uh, keep in touch. Yeah. Fabulous. You and your wife, Jewel. Yes. Beautiful Jewel. 
Yes. And uh, tune into leadership.com. Yes. Right. That's right. it. Well, thank you so much, Greg Thomas. Thank you so much, Phil Anderson. More to come. Thank you, everybody, for listening to The Daily Evolver. See you next time. <laughs>